So we, uh, one of the things we say around here a lot is imperfect people, imperfect Savior. And that includes when your boy here skips an entire verse of it as well. So I appreciate it that you guys bear with me in my imperfection. And uh, I hate that I robbed us of that edification. Um, but yeah, if you're trusting in me in any way, this morning is exhibit A that you would be sorely disappointed. We trust in Christ and Christ alone. And so let's go to God now and pray uh, because we desperately need his help. I do, obviously, need his help if our time and his word is going to be profitable. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come to you as sinful people. We've all done things this week uh, far worse, maybe even far more embarrassing than skipping a verse of a song. We are in need of righteousness that we don't have. We are in need that our sins would be forgiven and atoned for and your wrath borne for them. We are in need of your spirit's presence within us so that we might love you, that we might trust Christ, that we might love one another and obey your word. So we pray, God, that you would be faithful to us now, that you would come by your spirit, that you would fill me as the preacher of your word so that I might be helpful to this dear congregation. And we pray for all of us as we sit under the word. That includes me, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that would receive and love your word. So, Father, we pray you'd come. We pray that you'd minister to us. We need you to do that. Sustain and strengthen our faith in the Lord Jesus, we pray. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Amen. So I'm making an assumption. I make this assumption every week here at CBC. I, I preach God's word with visitors in mind. I preach God's word with even unbelievers in mind. But I am very conscious of the fact that I am called to preach God's word to this congregation of believers. And so I assume every week that when you come, you're going to come in here with all kinds of things going on. That's been acknowledged already today. Your week could have been good or bad or both at the same time, which is normal for there to be good and bad things in the same moments, in the same days, in the same weeks. But I also assume that in your heart and in your mind, deep down, because you are trusting in the Lord Jesus and because you've been born again, that you and I, that we want to understand God's word. We come here seeking the Lord. We come here needing him to minister to us. And we do come to his word wanting to understand it, wanting to know it, wanting to love what's revealed in it, wanting to be profited by it. And so I want to talk with you for just a minute Uh, just by way of introduction, about something that's been on my radar screen lately, even as I've been studying 1 John and as I wrestle with particular passages. So when it comes to understanding the Scripture, it's absolutely essential that we would understand the whole in order to understand the parts, if that makes sense. We need to understand the whole in order to understand the parts. Now that's true with respect to the entire Bible, So it's critical that we would understand the whole framework and the whole story of Scripture. That we would understand that God's word is primarily about God's plan of redemption accomplished through his son. And that all of this results in the praise of his glory. We understand that. But then it's also critical that we would understand 
the whole of a book, a particular book of the Bible, as we come to any given part of it, if we're going to understand it rightly. So with respect to the whole Bible, it's good for us to ask this question every time we look at a passage. Where does this text stand in relation to the main point of the scripture? Or in other words, where does this text stand in relation to Jesus? That's question one. But then the second question, more particularly, if you're in a book of the Bible, we're in 1 John right now, would be to ask this question. Where does this passage stand in the flow of the main purpose, the main argument of this book, of this letter? Because if we don't ask those questions, if we don't understand the whole, then we are going to be prone to make horrible mistakes with the parts. This is where people say absurd things from particular texts that flat out contradict other passages in Scripture. We can save ourselves from a multitude of errors if we give ourselves to the study of the whole as we move to the particular pieces and parts. So that's just a little bit of like draw the curtain back, a little bit of time for us to talk as a church family about how we understand Scripture. So that's why I so often will... Um, remind us, excuse me, of the main point of the Bible. You guys may be almost tired of me saying that, and that's okay. Saying that the Bible is about God's plan of redemption accomplished through Christ, applied by His Spirit to the praise of His glory. I hope you're not tired of that. But even if you are, it's, there's a method to that madness. And then this is why when we find ourselves in books of the Bible, you probably felt this way in the Galatians series. You probably felt this way in the First John series, where it's a constant reminder of, hey, remember what Paul is doing. Remember what John is writing. Remember why he's writing and what he's meaning to accomplish. There is a method to it. I don't just do it so that you can like roll your eyes out of your heads or something like, oh, here he goes again. I thought about saying all of this and then joking with you that I wouldn't even do that for you today, but I thought that wouldn't go over really well. So I'm going to do that for us again this morning. As we think about this letter of 1 John, remember what John is doing. Remember that he is writing to a church that has been bombarded by false teaching and apostasy, where there has been a lot of bad stuff taught in the church, and as a result, people are leaving. People are abandoning these saints to whom John is writing. It's clear when you read the letter, especially in big chunks, that John definitely understands that his listeners, his hearers, his readers are Christians, that they're the genuine article. And he is writing to them to bolster their assurance as redeemed people. And certainly he is saying things about what the redeemed do that will highlight the differences between the redeemed and those who were false professors. That's clear. Remember that he is exhorting these Christians to primarily do three things, to continue to trust Christ and believe the message about him that they've heard from the beginning. Secondly, to practice and strive after righteousness. And then thirdly, to press on in loving each other. And so we're going to continue to think today about all of this stuff, really, especially the trust in Christ peace, the indwelling power of God, but then also in presence of God, but then also what that means for our love for one another. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, you may already be open to 1 John and chapter 4. We will be looking today at verses 13 through 21 of 1 John 4. If you don't have your Bible with you today, that's okay. We will have the verses from the sermon text on the screen for you to follow along with us. So before we go any further, I will read God's word for us, beginning in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us 
because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Remember what we considered last week from verses 7 through 12 of 1 John 4, that we, the church, the redeemed, are of God, and so, therefore, we do what the redeemed do, namely, we love each other. We thought about how God's love for us drives our love for each other, how God's love for us came first, it's primary. Our love to God or our love for one another is a secondary thing. It's a response to God's initiating primary loving of us. God loved us when we were still his enemies, when we were weak, when we were still dead in sin. And at that time, he sent Christ for us. And we thought about also how God and his love become visible in us, in the church, when we love each other. Or to put that another way, it becomes very obvious that God dwells in us. So that would mean, and we'll think about this more today, God dwells in each individual believer. And God, perhaps even in a unique way, dwells in the believers assembled in the church. The church as the new temple. Right? It becomes obvious that God dwells in us and that his love for us is accomplishing its work in us when we love each other. We thought about that together last week. So in our time together today, as we look at verses 13 through 21, I want us to consider three encouragements from the Apostle John. We're going to consider one commandment that he reiterates, and then I want us to close our time with just a meditation from me on just thinking about the Christian life. So three encouragements from John, a commandment from John, a meditation from me. That's the plan. So encouragement number one. I'll try to repeat these headings a couple of times so that you guys can get them down if you're taking notes. Encouragement number one, we know we abide in God and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. This is verse 13. We know we abide in God and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So first things first, as we think about this reality that God has given us of his spirit. This might be clear to all, but it needs to be said. This is something that God does. God does this. He produces this. He is decisive in this. He is the one who makes this happen. Think about the text that we read earlier together as a congregation. Beautiful, powerful text from Ezekiel 36, where God talks about the fact that everything he's going to do for his people is not 
primarily for their sake. It's not because they deserve it. He's going to do it first and foremost for his own namesake, for the sake of his holy name. They have not done anything to merit what he's about to do, but he's going to do it in them and for them. In the context of Ezekiel 36, we realize that Israel is currently in exile in Babylon. So some of those things that are described in that text, we see immediately fulfilled in the return from exile, but we see them more ultimately fulfilled in the new covenant reality. The Messiah comes. Righteousness is counted to the people of God because of Christ. Sins are atoned for. Wrath is born. And then we see the ultimate, ultimate fulfillment of that text in the new heavens and the new earth, like that verse where it says it will be like the Garden of Eden. Whoa. New heavens and new earth, man. That's where we're headed. God is going to do this for his people, not because they deserve it, but because it's who he is and it's for the praise of his holy name. But he says in Ezekiel 36, I, I will take you from the nations and will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Again, ultimately fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth, right? I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I, I, I will do it, says the Lord God. Jesus in John chapter three, when he talks to Nicodemus, maybe famously says these words when he's talking with Nicodemus about what's required for eternal life. And he starts to use this language of being born again. And Nicodemus, you know, if he had emojis, it would have that new like mind blow emoji, right? Like head exploding, man. What do you mean? I'm a grown man. Am I supposed to enter my mother's womb again and be born? And Christ makes it clear to him that this is above your pay grade. This is something that you can't produce. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. We're talking about a spiritual birth of the spirit of God kind of thing. So brothers and sisters, quite simply, God is the one who makes verse 13 from our text a reality. You didn't make that a reality. I didn't make it a reality. God in his grace and mercy made that so. That's good news for you and me. Because if you're an honest person and if you're even a little bit self-aware, you know that if your new birth or you remaining in the faith had anything to do with you, that wouldn't be good. Because if you could mess it up, you will mess it up. And could you have messed it up from the jump, you would have messed it up then. And you wouldn't even be here today. God is the one who causes this new birth to happen. But here's a question. John says, by this we know that we abide in God and God in us because he's given us of his spirit. This is meant to bolster assurance. We know that God abides in us and we in him because he's given us of his spirit. Well, how do we see it? How do we see it? How do we experience it? How do we know that? A number of things we can say. One, we know that God has given us of his spirit because we're trusting Christ. We're trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking to him for righteousness. We're looking to him for atonement and propitiation in our place. 
We're looking to him and not to ourselves. We'll think about that more in a moment. We also know that God has given us of his spirit because we believe God about a number of things. At a minimum, we can say this. We believe God about what he says concerning himself. We believe God with respect to what he says about us, who we are. We believe God with respect to what he says about redemption, how a human being would ever be made to be in right relationship with him. Going on, we can see that God has given us of his spirit because we believe and trust God's word. So that assumption that I talked about making earlier, that we actually want to know God's word and we want to understand God's word, that assumption can only be made because of this reality, that you've got God's spirit in you. I've got God's spirit in me and the spirit gives us that desire. The fact that any of us would seek to align our lives with God's word is evidence that God has given us of his spirit. Another way that we know that God has given us of his spirit is that deep down inside, we speak to God and relate to God and call him father. Father, that's not natural. The natural state is what? Children of wrath. Enemies. This is a Romans 8 reality that we have not been given the spirit of slavery, right? That we would be consumed by fear, but we have been given the spirit of adoption through whom we cry, Abba, Father. Moving forward, how else do we know that God has given us of his spirit? We know that he's given us his spirit. Here's a big one. Because we now battle against corruption. We know that God has given us of his spirit because we now fight against corruption. I'm not saying that you do this perfectly. I certainly don't. None of us do, but it's real. It happens in your life on a regular basis where you're aware of sin. You're aware of corruption within you. You're aware of your tendencies to go your own way. You're very aware of all those times in that kind of Roman seven reality where I end up doing things that I don't want to do and I neglect to do the things that I want to do. You're aware of that. And you fight and you pray and you strive and you cry. We, because we have God's spirit, really hate our sin now. We don't like it. We don't want to do it. And you realize that that ability could never come from you. The ability to hate our sin could never come from us. Now, in a worldly way, in a very natural way, we could desire to be moral. In a natural way, we could desire to be upright to the end that we would be well thought of, to the end that we would be well respected, to the end that society would function smoothly, whatever. But to hate sin because you know it destroys you and ultimately to hate sin because you know that it dishonors God can only happen as a result of God's spirit being given to us. So it's, it's this kind of ironic thing. You become a Christian and your life in some ways gets harder. Right, a lot of that's what's so absurd about the ways that the gospel is preached sometimes. It's like come to Christ And your life, like here and now, will get better. It's like, well, high level, you're exactly right. Come to Christ and all is well eternally. 
But in the meantime, come to Christ and you've got a new real internal war on your hands. You used to sin and didn't care. And now you sin and you struggle with that. You're grieved by that. It's precisely because of the Holy Spirit's presence and work in us and our union with Jesus that we now have that war going on inside. And this is why even after we have trusted Jesus and are justified, this is why throughout the process of sanctification and throughout all the days of the Christian life, we've always got to be looking to Christ because of that internal war. Moving forward though, how else do we know that we've been given of God's spirit? Related to what we just thought, not only do we battle against corruption, we seek after righteousness. We seek after righteousness, imperfectly, yet really, because we know it pleases God. We seek after righteousness because we have known and come to believe that it's good for us. Whereas naturally we think that all these other things are good. The world tells us a lot of things are good that aren't. But we know that God has said, this is good. I believe God. I trust him. I'm going to pursue that. Just like your ability to hate your sin could never come from you. The desire to pursue Righteousness, as revealed in God's word, could never come from you either. It's evidence that God has given to you of his spirit. We could go on. We know that God has given to us of his spirit because we now love him and because we now love one another. These are things that we've been thinking about throughout our time in 1 John. But I want to move us now to encouragement number two. Encouragement number two. Not only has God given us of his spirit so we know that God abides in us and us in him. Now also, we know that we abide in God and he in us because we confess that Jesus is the son of God. We know that we abide in God and he in us because we confess that Jesus is the son of God. We're going to look at verses 14 and 15 together now for just a moment. John states very clearly, God's given us of his spirit, verse 13, and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. And this, whoever confesses that reality, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God. Now, that's not divorced from everything else John has said, right? Who came in the flesh, who's the propitiation for sins, etc. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So let's think even from just this letter of 1 John about that good confession. What does it mean to confess Jesus? We confess that he's the son of God, that he hails from heaven and came from there. That is that he's truly God. We confess also that he came in the flesh that we've thought about together, that he's truly man. We confess that he is the savior of the world, the definite article savior of the world. Like he is the only one under heaven through whom anyone can be saved. And that's offensive, right? But we believe that. It's like, you know, I don't want to offend people, but I believe that with everything in here, even when it's hard. We confess about Jesus that he is our advocate with the Father. So when we sin, we confess, we say together, we trust that he is our advocate. He pleads the merit of his blood for us 
with the Father. We confess that Jesus is the righteous one. Right? That's what John says in the first verse of chapter two. When I'm writing these things so no one, so that you might not sin, and if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the righteous one. We'll think about that more in a minute. We confess that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, meaning that he was the offering, the sacrifice put forward to satisfy God, to satisfy God's righteousness and God's wrath against sin in our place. We confess that. And we confess again that he is not only the propitiation for our sins, but more broadly, he is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Again, he is the savior of the world. And then also, we're going to think about this more next week. I almost, brief aside, you know, next Sunday is Easter. We're going to continue on through 1 John. And in God's providence, there's all kinds of talk about eternal life and life in the sun and life this and life that. Anyway, we trust the Lord with that. But we believe that Jesus is the one not only through whom eternal life comes, but that eternal life is in him. It's the language of John. We're going to think about that more together next week. So all of those things are a part of what we confess about the Lord Jesus. We confess that he has paid our penalty under the law, that he's atoned for sin, that he's died to death that we deserve. And so that in him, we really died. It's counted to us. So we don't owe God any penalty anymore. We do not owe the law anything anymore because Jesus did that. We confess that he satisfied the wrath of God for us and that that's over. We confess that he fulfilled the law perfectly in our place as a man. So this is why it matters that he was truly human, not only to die for men, but to live for men. We confess that about him and that he provides us with eternal life, that he is our resurrection. He is our life forever and that he has accomplished our salvation. So then, all right, that's what we confess about the Lord Jesus. So this again is we know that God abides in us and us in God because we confess this stuff. We believe this stuff about Jesus. But then it, it is simply confession on the one hand, but it's also this thing that accompanies confession called faith. It's kind of assumed in confession, if that makes sense. To confess something and believe it assumes faith. So what do we do? We confess these things about Christ and we turn from sin. We confess these things about Christ and then we turn from ourselves completely. We turn from ourselves, our own notions of our own goodness. We turn from our own notions of our own righteousness. And we're just like, no, nah, I'm not, not trusting that. And then we cast ourselves completely upon the Lord Jesus. So this is all wrapped up, friends, in this. We know that God dwells in us and we in God because we do this. We trust this. We don't look to ourselves at all. We look away from ourselves completely and cast ourselves completely upon the mercy of God in Christ. We don't trust that we will succeed. We don't trust that we will triumph. We don't trust that we will be righteous enough. We don't trust that our good deeds will somehow outweigh our bad ones. We're just like, no, no, all of that stuff, that's foolishness. And I'm turning from that and I'm trusting Christ. That's evidence that God abides in us and us in him. It's so 
unnatural. The natural tendency is what? The way that people naturally talk is what? Self-belief. Trust yourself. You got to believe in yourself. You're a conqueror, right? All that language, it just permeates everything. I love golf, okay? It's confession. The Masters is happening this weekend. Amen, somebody, right? So the Masters is happening this weekend, and I'm listening to some of the commentary last night as I'm trying to catch up on like the first two rounds. And Nick Faldo, who I, I like, he was a really good golfer in his day. He's now an analyst. He keeps talking, he talks all the time about certain guys that are good players that also have a lot between the ears. They're mentally good um, golfers. They're tough mentally. And he's just like, you know, you've got to have it. You've got to have that. You've got to have not only that mental fortitude, but you've got to have that self-belief, man. You've got to have that self-belief. Now, he's talking about golf. He's talking about in the heat of competition, you've got to trust yourself. You've got to know that you've got the medal to be able to get through and do it. This is how we all naturally think about ourselves wholesale in life. Trust yourself. Rely upon yourself. Believe in yourself. Gather people around you who will applaud you. This is what it's about. This is how we live well. So for you to sit here today and forsake all of that and say, no, I'm not going to trust me at all. In fact, like the last thing in the world I'm going to do is trust me and I'm going to trust Christ. I'm going to look to Christ alone. I'm going to follow God's word and what he says about Christ. It's evidence that you're not natural, supernatural. It's grace. God dwells in you and you in him. You trust his son. There are things that I could say that I'm going to refrain from saying because I love you. There will be other times to say them. We're going to move on to encouragement number three. Encouragement number three. In considering Jesus, we have come to know and trust the love God has for us. And so there is no need to fear. I'm going to say that all again. In considering Jesus... We have come to know and trust the love God has for us. And so there is no need to fear. I hope that's clear enough. I'm going to read verses 14 and 15 into 16. Look at your Bibles with me or look at the screen. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. All right, stop. How have we come to know and believe the love that God has for us? How's that happen? It's in considering and contemplating the Lord Jesus Christ and what God has done for us in him. And what kind of love is it that God has for us? That's another question. How has he loved us? Well, we thought about this at length last week. Put your eyes back on verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. How? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us by considering Christ. 
and what he has done for us. I'm not saying that's the only way that we see the love of God, but it's what the apostle writes. The greatest expression of the love of God for his people is Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his atoning death, his triumphant resurrection. Like we've thought about already in this series, if we ever question God's love for us, look at the incarnation, the fact that God became man. If we ever question God's love for us, look at the life that Christ lived for 33 years. He didn't just come to earth in Passion Week. He lived for 33 years in this wasteland called fallen earth, right? And accomplished righteousness. If we want to know the love of God for us, my goodness, look to the cross like we're going to do on Friday. The greatest display of the love of God and the righteousness of God is the cross of Jesus Christ, right? You want to know about the love of God for us? Look at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, conquering the grave. That's a big deal. It's an enemy, right? It's a terrifying thought. Death. Christ conquered that. Conquered sin. That's amazing to think about an existence without sin. Christ has secured that for us. He's conquered Satan, the great enemy of God's people for us, an enemy we could never defeat. He has conquered hell for us. So this is how primarily, first and foremost, we see the love of God displayed. It's in the person and the work of Jesus. That's what the apostle says. So let's put our eyes back on verse 16. So in this way, we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us by considering Christ. And then he goes on. God is love. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Now, in the context, you can you can judge for yourself. You have your scripture there. Certainly, this would include our love for each other, like abiding in love in that sense. It would include that. But I think the emphasis is something different. So I think he's talking about the love of God for us right there in verse 16. Whoever abides in that, who dwells, remains, rests in that love, right? Abides, whoever abides in that love abides in God and God abides in him. Now, verse 17, let's think together. The flow of John's argument. Remember the the purpose of the letter? He's writing to assure the redeemed, right? These saints who have been under siege from various things. He's been telling them that in considering Christ, We have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in God's love abides in God and God in him. Now verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, that he, by the way, in the original language, it's very obvious because of the word that's used. It literally is, it literally says, because as that one is, so are we. And that one in First John is Jesus every time. So when it says there in verse 17, by this is love perfected in us, we're going to think about that, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as Jesus is, so also are we in this world. And we're going to unpack all of this together. All right, so. By this, by our knowing and our trusting the love that God has for us in Christ, verse 16, and by our abiding in God's love, verse 16, is, by those things, is love perfected with us, verse 17, right? You tracking with me? Okay. 
In other words, it is by our knowing and trusting the love of God as we behold Christ and as our abiding in, resting in the love of God, this is how God's love accomplishes its purposes in us. I'm going to try to say that again. So when we see that language, by this is love perfected with us, that perfected we've thought about a number of times. That means that a goal is being accomplished, that an end is being reached. By this, the things that he's been saying, the contemplation of Christ, knowing and trusting God's love for us, abiding in God's love for us, by this will God's love accomplish its good work in us. That's what he's saying. Right? To what end? To what end? Why? It's the purpose. All right, you see it. So that, it's a great word. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Okay, God's love is accomplishing its work in us so that we might have confidence for the day of judgment. Wow. Okay, how? How? How can we have confidence? God's holy, as Joshua talked about when beginning of the service. He's so holy that like priests were having to be pulled out by ropes because they would just be annihilated, struck dead on the spot. All right, we see it. God's love is perfected in us, reaches its goals in order that we may have confidence on the day of judgment because as Jesus is, so also are we in this world. Right, so what does that mean? As Jesus is, we are. So as Jesus is now, we are now. That's how you could see that. As Jesus is now, we are in this world now. Two or three thoughts for you. These are pretty great. One, righteous. What is Jesus now? Righteous. So the, the apostle is pointing us to the love of God displayed to us in Christ so that we might have confidence on the day of judgment because as Jesus is, we also are in this world righteous. Not in ourselves, not in our own merit, but in him. By faith in the Son, we're righteous. We've been credited with the perfect righteousness of Jesus, and so the apostle can say that as Christ is, we are. That's huge. We have confidence on the day of judgment because his righteousness is ours now. But second, what else is Christ? As John is writing this, where is Jesus? He's in heaven, but this is after he's been resurrected. He has a body still, and that body is what? Glorified. So Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father, righteous and glorified. So not only can we see in this verse, we can have confidence on the day of judgment because we are righteous now, but because just as sure as Christ is glorified now, we too will be glorified. So this is like that bedrock under your feet kind of stuff. When your week has just been a disaster, when sin is just getting the better of you, when circumstances are horrible, this is rock under your feet. This is also rock under your feet when you've had the best week that you've ever had in your life. Because that's fleeting and that's perishing. So as Jesus is, we are righteous and glorified. And as we've already thought about today, Jesus calls God Father. And so too can we. It's pretty cool stuff that the apostle gives us here. 
He goes on in verse 18, though, to think more about this confidence idea. Confidence for the day of judgment. Because the day of judgment, I mean, even that language, does it not sound scary? It does to me. The day of judgment, you know, the reckoning kind of thing. It's just not a pleasant thought. But we are not to fear it. Verse 18. John goes on. Love the love of God perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as Jesus is, so we also are in the world. There is no fear in love for perfect love. And that perfect love is God's love for us, right? God's love for us in Christ Jesus most specifically. Perfect love casts out, literally throws out fear. Like it's hurled out. Fear is no longer welcome amongst the redeemed because of what Christ has done and the love of God demonstrated to the saints in Jesus. So there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and that doesn't await us. Punishment doesn't await us. Praise God. I mean, amen, right? Someone. Because it's what we deserve. This, this portion of John's letter is wonderful in terms of its thoughtfulness, its tenderness, its compassion towards the saints. There is no reason to fear now because punishment is not coming to you. And then the last part of the verse, whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Let's talk about that for a minute. Whoever fears has not been protected in love, perfected, excuse me, in love. I would understand it to mean, and you have your Bible in front of you, that there is not yet complete understanding and total trust in God's love for us in Christ, right? What's the goal of God's love for us that we've been thinking about? It's that we would trust God completely, that we would rest in Christ completely, that we would have no fear, that we would be confident because we're righteous and we will be glorified. So if we're afraid, it's because God is still working in us. There is work to be done. That's how I would understand the last part of verse 18. What's not being done there, like so here's our tendency, right? We look at that and read it. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. It's like, okay, oh my gosh. If I'm, if I'm scared about judgment at all, if I have doubts at all, I just must not be a Christian. That's not what that means. Not what it means. I mean, I think you can see that just as we've made our way through this text together. The point is not to question that person's salvation, but rather to point out that God's desire for his people is that we would rest in his love for us that we would rest in Christ and that we wouldn't fear. That's God's will. It's his desire. In other words, God does not desire that his people would be afraid. Reverent, yes. Humble, absolutely. But afraid, no. Those are different things. So when we see that word fear of the Lord, we're not talking about afraid of like an evil thing. We're talking about fear and reverence and awe. So we should be reverent. We should be in awe. We should be the most humble people on planet Earth. And we ought to have confidence and not be afraid because of Christ. It's a pretty remarkable thing. And this is a paradigm shift. At least it has been for me in my life. I don't know about you. It's a paradigm shift to go from a system in the church that is motivated by fear and is motivated by guilt 
and is driven by those things where I'm always working so that I won't be damned. I'm always trying to climb up into the Father's arms because I'm not there. This is a paradigm shift to say, no, God's will is not that you would be scared like that. God's will is that you would rest in Him and that you would trust Christ. And from there, you will be sanctified. That changes the game. Like that term game changer is overused. This is one for real. Like it will change the game in terms of how you look at scripture and how you understand the Christian life. That the fundamental baseline resting heart rate for us is trust and peace, joy and love, not fear and dread and guilt. We're going to move on now to the commandment John gives. I want to kind of keep our foot on the gas pedal here. We're going to look at verses 19 through 21 together now. The commandment that John gives is just a reiteration of something he said a number of times already. And that is this. Love your brothers and sisters. Love your brothers and sisters. Here we go. Verse 19. We love because he first loved us. We've thought about this a lot. It's like, lest anybody misunderstand, we love God and each other because God first loved us. Sounds just like verses 10 and 11 of the letter. It's not that we've loved God, it's that God loved us. He sent his son to be the propitiation for us. And so, beloved, if God loved us like that, then we obviously ought to love each other. That's how that works. Just another reiteration that God's love is primary, that God's love for us makes our love to him and one another possible, and that God's love for us also is what produces our love toward him and each other. So if you love God this morning, and if you love the brothers and sisters this morning, God has made that so by his love for you and his work in you. Let's look at verse 20. Our love for one another is a big deal, as we can see. John goes on. If anyone says, I love God, just professes that. I love God. I know God. A lot of people profess that. And hates his brother, He's a liar. Why? Because for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen literally is not able to love God whom he has not seen. So this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. This happens a lot in Paul and John's writing. If you can't do the lesser thing, if you don't love your brothers and sisters whom you've seen, your brothers and sisters whom you're in close contact with all the time, if you don't love your brother or your sister, which is a smaller, lesser thing, how much more so are you unable than to love God whom you have never seen? And we also could add is perfect and holy and righteous and all of these things that you're not. If you can't love your brother, if you don't love your brother, how could you love God? You can't. Verse 21, and this commandment we have from him, from God, and also directly from the Lord Jesus, John 13, that we've thought about a number of times. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So at the end of the day, there it is. Whoever loves God loves his brother. Full stop, right? Period. Imperfectly and really. This is because, as we've thought about before, loving God and loving one another are inextricably linked together. Or it could even be said this way. 
that we quite often demonstrate our love for God through our love for each other. We put handles on our love for God in the ways that we love each other. So those things are not contradictory. To be told, you know, love God over here, and then also to be told that, like, you've got to love your brother, those things aren't in any kind of tension. You demonstrate love for God by love for your brother and sister. We've thought about loving each other a decent amount as we've made our way through the letter. So I want to move us on now to just our closing meditation from me, a thought or thoughts from me. And this is with respect to God's will for us. So that's what this is about. God's will for us, CBC and as Christians. So I'm aiming to pull from the major emphases of this passage in what I'm about to say. So I think we're all honest. We tend to obsess over God's will for our lives. Do we not? We wig out about stuff. We, is this God's will? Is this not God's will? In so many ways, God's will for our lives is to stop obsessing over God's will for our lives. People, when they come to any decision of import, right, the panic starts to happen. Like, what school should I attend? Where should I live? What job should I have? Should I take that promotion? Should I take this other position with this other company? What city should we live in? All these kinds of things. We begin to really wrestle with Man, what's the will of God for me? Who should I marry? That's a big one. In so many ways, God's will for our lives is to stop obsessing over God's will for our lives. So God's word contains a lot of high-level stuff, high-level stuff that would constitute his will for us. From this passage... All right, so here we go. If you've come here and you're thinking, man, yeah, bro, I'd love to hear something about God's will for me. Give me a word, brother. Here we go. One, here's God's will for you. Confess that Jesus is the son of God. There we go. We'll start there. It's pretty basic, pretty fundamental. Confess that Jesus is the son of God. Look away from yourself. Look completely to Christ for your righteousness, for your atonement, for the propitiation of God's wrath in your place for your resurrection, for your life. I'm trusting Christ. There we go. That's one. Two. Know and trust the love that God has for you. Rest in it. The love that God has for you. There's his will. Not that you would be afraid, but that you would rest in the love that he has. That you would abide in his love, the perfect love that he has for you and me in Christ. What else is God's will for you and for me? It's that we would have confidence for the day of judgment. That we wouldn't look towards final judgment in fear, but no, we know that's going to go well because of Christ. Alongside that, God's will is for us not to be afraid. And then finally, God's will is for us to love one another, our brothers and sisters. So, I often rail against, or at least I rail against this in private conversation. I think I probably have from the pulpit. This idea of like the codified Christian life, how we tend to codify everything. We are just like the Pharisees, right? We mean well, and we just add all kinds of stuff to the word of God that constitutes a faithful Christian life. That's just nowhere in the scripture. It might be wisdom 
prudence, whatever, but it becomes this thing that's taught as doctrine. Like you got to do this stuff if you're going to live the Christian life. Here's steps one through 37 to this, and here's steps one through 17 to this, and here's eight ways to a better marriage and all that. The codified Christian life, I don't like it very much. But here's a code for you. You want a codified something, we love codes, give you one. First John, high level. Here's a code for the Christian life. Trust Christ. Rest in the perfect love of God for you. Practice righteousness. Love each other. There's a code. That's a good code. Trust Christ. Rest in the perfect love of God for you. Practice righteousness. Love one another. That's a code. I I could get on board with that. I trust you could too. If we keep those things at the forefront of our minds always, we'd be doing quite well. Quite well. If those things were like the focus and the front burner, and we just kind of let some of this other stuff just kind of be over here in the periphery where it ought to be, we would be doing well. So brothers and sisters, we know that God dwells in us because he's given us of his spirit. We know that God dwells in us because we confess and trust Christ. The way that we will become more confident, the way that we will know more and more the love of God for us is to consider the Lord Jesus and what he's done for us. Remember, weary saint, as you come in here sinning today, that as Christ is now, so you are righteous. Your glorification is certain. Suffice it to say that God has loved us extravagantly. We rest there in the love of God for us. And then we respond to the love of God for us in love to him and then in love for one another. That's how we live. Let's pray and ask God for his help that we might do those things. Our Father, we come to you now and as we so often need to be reminded, we need you just as much now as we did when the sermon started. And we need you to be working by your spirit just as much right now to apply God's word to us as we did when we started. So we pray that you would do that. And we pray that you would keep working in us by your spirit whom you have given to us. We pray that you would work in us to where we would contemplate and consider your love for us in Christ. And that as we do that, we pray that good fruit would come that we would grow in confidence, that we would grow in love toward you, that we would grow in love toward one another. We do pray, Lord, that we would be delivered from all fear. We want to be reverent before you. We want to be in awe of you. We want to walk humbly before our God, and we don't want to be afraid. So we ask that you would deliver us from fear. We pray that you would use not only the preaching of your word this morning to do that, we pray that you would use the table as we come now to partake of the Lord's Supper. We pray that you would be driving out fear amongst us even now as we look to what Christ has done. Continue to minister to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.